0: I'd like to introduce our speaker for this morning, and our speaker is someone I've known for a long time. Uh, I tried very, very hard when we planted Antioch to get him to move up and be a pastor here, uh, and he, he didn't. Um, but uh, Jake Hendricks is somebody that for a long time, it was interesting, I, I knew him back when he was in high school, and he was the captain of the football team, homecoming king, and the, the least likely guy you'd ever expect to plant a church And to preach the gospel, um, straightforward, uh, the gospel of grace, unabashedly. But God has used his ability to connect with people, his authenticity, in amazing ways um, and just doing what he does. And so Jake and his wife Rose uh, planted a church called House of Providence in Vancouver, Washington. They're a part of the church planting network that we've uh, joined with a number of other churches. And you'll be hearing more and more about that as, as time continues uh, but they were at Imago Day, and then were able to plant out of Imago Day. And Jake's going to be able to continue our series that we've been in this morning, uh, speaking on greed. And I'm just excited for you guys to be able to hear Jake. Um, is one of the, kind of the favorite people that I have out there that are in my peer group. So would you please uh, give a warm welcome to Jake Hendricks?
1: Thanks. Good to be here. Good morning. Greed. This wasn't planned either. I'm sitting in my seat going, What is this? This It's like a little setup here. We're going to talk about money and then someone else talk about greed. Oh, you little greedy. (laughs) I asked for pride, but someone else took it. Um, It's always, uh, it feels like coming home, being in bend. I was actually born in Bend and uh, was raised in Prineville, my early childhood in Prineville. Any, anybody from Prineville? Nobody wants to claim it, one? That's right, that's good. I don't claim it anymore, either. no. Um, I was a Crick County cowboy until two months into my freshman year, and then my folks decided to move to Los Angeles, which was, uh, which was fun, interesting, to say the least, and uh, ended up going to a high school the size of Prineville. And, uh, <laughs> learned a lot. But that's also where I met Ken, and we got to serve together at a church down there in LA, and also with uh, Linda Van Voorst, Jannie, what I used to you know her as. So anyways, it's always, always good to be here. Um, I love driving over the mountain and seeing the three sisters, and I like seeing the sunshine, which is nice. You don't get to see that over in the Portland, Vancouver area, so really glad to be here. So Greed. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated, uh, I'll probably steal it, I'm fascinated by this idea of, of covering the seven deadly sins. I don't think I have a morbid fascination, but I really do think there is something intellectually fascinating about uh, sins that hold out this promise. You've got gluttony and pride, um, greed, lust, these things that kind of hold out the promise of life to say, this is really good stuff, it's stuff that you enjoy. And yet it's stuff that in the end robs you of life, that actually causes destruction, that these things hold out this promise, and they're tantalizing, and they feel good. It feels good to be prideful. It's good to eat a lot of food. We have these strong desires for sex and lust, and they hold out this promise, and it's this empty promise, and they just, they switch it on and they become this trap. And so I think it really is a a fascinating, I'm fascinated by this idea of the seven deadly sins. Um, these things that hold out the promise of life that end up taking our lives. One of the clearest pictures I've, I've heard recently: one of my best friends um, serves with the Los Angeles Police, Police Department, and he's a, he's a bit of a rookie. He's like three or four months in. Um, at this point, he's about three or four years in. But his first three months, he got the title of the Grim Reaper, and he's like six four and pale white, anyways, and weighs like a buck twenty. But in the in the course of, I think he said about two or three months, um, he had 12 death calls, mostly suicide, some murder. And he was a high school teacher before this, so I'm just fascinated, like you just jumped from, he was a private, uh, at a private Christian school, becomes uh, LAPD, and experiences all this stuff just right away. And it's the whole gamut. It's, it's kind of like the movie, like The Seven Deadly Sins Come to Life, all these different ways that people have died. They've killed themselves or killed someone else. And so I got to pick his brain a little bit. And like, what in the world um, drives people to this sort of madness that they would do this? I'm just fascinated. You get to be, you're a front row seat, and because he's the rookie, he's the one doing everything. They're sending him in first. He's first on scene because they want him to get all the experience. So he's just, he's there experiencing this for the first time. So I'm really curious, like, what is it? What's happening? Um. And he said in almost every single case, it boils down to one type of sin that's really just taken root. It really is this seven deadly sins kind of flushing itself out. Someone who's just so prideful about the way they look, they don't want to start to deteriorate. They hate the idea of looking weak, and so they'd rather kill themselves in isolation. Someone just so angry that they end up committing murder. All these different things that he's going, it really is, as I'm watching this thing, because in my mind, I'm like, this must be this complex system that drives people to this. He goes, it really, most of the time, comes down to one sin that has really taken root um, and becomes deadly. Sin ends up twisting till light even becomes darkness. Um, and that's why I think it's fascinating. I mean, it's it's not very it's not a very Christmassy series, but I think it is a an interesting, fascinating series, none the least, to say, let's take a look at what, what sin, what is the, what's happening in these sins. Um, and maybe even to put some gravity behind some of these sins, because we can kind of view sin as like, yeah, it's just kind of this old-fashioned thing that we talk about. One of the guys that's helped me the most, and this is just just to kind of be clear, this is kind of just a general overview of the de- seven deadly sins, and we'll get into greed um, in a minute. Peter Kreeft he, he uses this simple game, this little mind game, to really display the gravity of what sin does and what sin is. And, and specifically, in dealing, he, he does it in dealing with the nature of evil and suffering and saying that sin is actually a greater evil than natural disaster. And um, he says this. Here's a story that maybe will make it helpful um, to see the gravity of sin. Suppose you're in wartime, you're in a war, Um, and your whole family is there, and your family is captured, and you're captured, and the captors give you a choice. You can either be tortured and killed, or you can torture and kill your family. Which is worse? Being destroyed physically, or becoming a destroyer? Which is the worst evil? Another way to put it, imagine this. You're having a nightmare in which a dragon or this evil demon or spirit is chasing you, and he wants to catch you and destroy you. A worse nightmare would be one in which you became that dragon, and you could never stop from being that dragon. The second state is much worse than the first. If you're destroyed physically by something evil, you're still you. You still have yourself. You have kept yourself. And therefore, it isn't as bad as this spiritual state of becoming someone who destroys themselves and destroys others and destroys life. This is the nature of sin. It's not just this list of do's and don'ts. It isn't just, God really wants you to be a good little boy or a good little girl and just obey and don't think about it. The nature of sin is this is that it transforms people into destroyers. And at the same time, and this is really the wicked part of it, is that it blinds you. It blinds you into who you're becoming. So there's a real gravity in sin saying, yeah, these things, it's not just kind of a a cute little catchphrase, That seven deadly sins. They are things that destroy, and they make you a destroyer. And this is why, to to refer to this is why I think it's so fascinating. That something that holds this promise of life, that it just it's so good, how could it be bad, it becomes something that ends up in destruction, brings death and destruction. And it's no different when you come to greed, that this deep desire for more, or the literal definition, the excessive desire for more, specifically more wealth, Or more possessions. This promise says more will make you happy. More will give you the life that you want. You don't have enough. And if you just had more, then you would have life. And it's really tough because greed is like second skin for Americans. It's super, super tough to see. I don't think it's hard to make a case that it's hard to see that you're greedy. And that greed just kind of settles in and it's tough to root out. We're mired in it. You ever watch the the show hoarders? I've seen it like two or three times, but it's just fascinating. Like, how in the world did we get to like mounds of like almonds or I don't know what else is in these houses? Like Santa Toys, just these things, these people have just hoarded, they're just greedy for more. And you're like, this is, it just looks like death in there. That's like the worst thing I've ever seen. But for them, it's life. They need more. They need more. They want more. More is going to make me happy. It may be, even, and I think there's a strong case that it's the most talked about sin right now in the headlines. What's the undercurrent of all the Occupy movement? That, where we're at, it's all Occupy right now. It's kind of taking up all the news headlines. What is it? What's the huge sign that everyone's holding up that's become the mantra? We are the 99%, right? Which assumes that there's these greedy, this greedy 1% that has brought death and destruction to all us 99%ers. It's about corporate greed. How dare these people be greedy? Greed is front and center. Maybe one of the most talked about sins right now. Greed is this insatiable desire that holds out the promise of a good life It leads to all sorts of destruction. Someone summed it up uh, this way, and they said this, Most of the mess that is called history comes about because kings and presidents cannot be satisfied with a nice chicken and a good loaf of bread. Which you kind of start to strip away things. Like, that's what what Jesus does. He starts to strip away, like, what do you really need? I love coming here because I come to my cousin's house, and he cooks like a madman. It's just brilliant. And what else do you need than just a good chicken and a solid loaf of bread? Really, what more do you need? Just the simple things done right. That's what's. That's that's what's good. You I know, mean, it's this this desire for more that gets held. out. said, so, no, you need more. More will bring you abundance. More will bring you life. Greed isn't taken out very easily. It roots in. It hides. It's hard to detect in ourselves, and it's super to detect, super easy to detect in other people, kind of like pride. We love pointing it out, right? The classic sign from the Occupy Movement, we are the 99%. My favorite moment so far, I'm not a big Facebook poster, but someone posted the picture of the kid, maybe in Ghana, in Africa, saying, we're the 99%. And the person holding the 99%, you're the 1%. Right? It's super easy to detect in other people. Oh, they're so greedy. They're so prideful. Super hard to detect in yourself. Jesus knows this. He speaks more to the issue of money than he does to prayer. Should kind of tip us off a little bit. It's a large part of our life. A big temptation in life is to be greedy, and it's hard to recognize in ourselves. So, if you have a Bible, let's get into the Bible. Luke chapter 12. I love how Jesus deals with things in short, punchy stories. These parables, and Luke 12 is a parable where he aims right at greed. And he tries to just uproot it out of someone's heart. Luke chapter 12. And he's pretty focused. It's really just straight, just this laser beam um, story dealing with greed. Chapter 12. Um, and let's start in verse 8. 12-8. And this just as, is just as the setup, because I think the setup is half the story. Um, the, the setup is Jesus is teaching about some super heavy stuff. Maybe some of the heaviest stuff in Scripture. This crowd is around, and he's, he's in the thick of it, and he's talking about heaven and hell and judgment. And this is just the back scene before he gets into it. So let me read verse 8. He says this. Luke chapter 12, verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Heavy stuff, saying, if you're going to deny me on earth, I'm going to deny you when you get to heaven. You would think that has some like some gravitas in the moment where you're just like, ugh. Even just hearing it right now. So he's, he's delivering this message, and someone yells out this, which I just think is fascinating. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, and you're thinking they're going to say something about this topic, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Wh- what? This is like teaching junior hires. This is exactly what it's like. Ken was in high school. I was doing junior high, and it's like, you, you think you're just delivering something up, and they'll be like, teacher, teacher, you got to call me. I love karate. <laughs> what are you, where are you right now? Where is your brain? I don't know. Some guy yells out, he's going, you know, I, I'm going to deny you. And he goes, hey, tell my brother to give me half of my share. This is what he yells out classic, very human. Jesus' response, but he said to a man, which is super ironic, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Which he's just talking about being a judge, right? Like eternally. And he's like, I'm not your judge. It feels like that just like flies right over the guy's head. To be fair, the inheritance in the Middle East was a huge deal. And most likely what this meant is that the father, when he died, he maybe died suddenly, he didn't leave a will. And so typically the older brother would be in charge of the entire estate, which would be your whole life. It would be all the money. He's saying, now it's in this brother's hands. And for some reason, he's not giving it to his younger brother. To be fair, it's this, this plea for justice, it's a plea for fairness. This guy's saying, Hey, I, I, I want to get what's coming to me. It's only fair that I get what I deserve. This is, this is my family. I should get this. And Jesus, his response, he recognizes this is just fascinating. He recognizes this guy's plea for justice and fairness as actually being greedy for this little fortune. He looks through this, like, this petition for justice, and he sees it as this. Greedy little monster. Verse 15, and he said to them, take care, literally beware, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This guy's crying out, this is what's going to bring him life. And Jesus just cuts right through the plea for justice, recognizes for what it is, And he literally, the literal literal word is, take heed and beware of every kind of insatiable desire. Be careful, beware, this thing's just going to root down deep inside you. Why be careful? Because more things won't bring you life. This is the main point of the whole sermon. More things doesn't equal more life. He says it directly. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life is much more than just what you have and what you think you need to have a good life. And a sure way to choke out a good life is to be greedy for more stuff. Abundance isn't in your possessions. It's somewhere else. This is the essence of life. This is the main point. Life true life isn't found in more possessions. Every once in a while in your life, typically it's around death, you get that 30,000 foot view, and recently it happened to me. Someone in my family at the twilight of their life, close to the end. And what are they saying? They're not saying, I wish, I'm, I'm just so glad I got that one Pottery Barn couch. I'm just so thankful. No, you're saying, I wish I would have fought harder to restore this relationship with my son. It wasn't worth it to wait this long. When you, when you get that 30,000 foot view, you see what life really is. It's not in your possessions. It's not what brings a good life. It's relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with your family and your friends and your neighbor. This is what brings life. And so Jesus calls it straight, he hits it right on the head, says, your possessions don't bring you life. And that simple statement flies in the face of billions of dollars of advertisements that we sit through every single day that say, year after year, these things will bring you life. Billions of dollars are spent trying to convince you that say, these things, if you just had this, this will bring you life and happiness. And it's not just advertisements. It's not just the evil guys. It's our own fears. Our possessions, what we have, oftentimes are bonded to a deep, irrational fear that says this What if you don't have enough? What if one day you wake up and you don't have enough to take care of your family? And it's easy to give in to this lie that says, you know what, I just need to eat more. More is going to make me happy. More is going to make me secure. This is where life is found. And the trap becomes that there is never enough. Greed becomes this bottomless pit where you just want more and more and more and more. And greed becomes this ghost you never catch up with. Because life can't be found in possessions. Abundance isn't found in possessions. Easily, greed can be driven by an insecurity that never ever dies. H.L. Mencken said it brilliantly The best client is a scared millionaire. Someone with all kinds of possessions, and they're absolutely afraid to lose it. The more money you have, the more afraid you become about losing it. You never get that like, (sighs) that moment of like, now we're good, now we're safe, now we're there. You end up just chasing your tail for the abundance of possessions, and life isn't found there. So Jesus, he just states it right up front. He's like, this is, life isn't found in the abundance of possessions. But then he tells a story, and I love it when he tells a story. And this is the story he tells to this crowd in response to this guy. This is verse 16. And he told them a parable saying this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And the man thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. It's perfect, right? Makes sense, it's logical. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I swear Ken didn't pick out greed for me to talk on this Sunday. I I gave it to him. I said, hey, how about greed? This is what God's laid on my heart. So, summarize it. This guy's land produces a ton of a ton of crops, more than he has space for. So he tears down all of his barns and his silos, and he builds bigger barns, which is very, very logical to me. Is it logical to you? You have all kinds of stuff. This is what God's given you. Build larger barns. Reasonable. Then, interestingly enough, he talks to his soul. He says, soul, you have ample goods stored up. Eat, drink, be happy, relax. And God says, fool, you need your soul, and you don't have a soul. You gave it to all your barns. And what you thought would bring you life, now whose stuff will that be? So it goes for those who fill up their life with self and are not rich towards God. Super punchy story. Few observations and then we'll be done. If you look at the text, the rich man, first observation, is completely focused on himself. It's very subtle, but he's completely focused on himself. Everything is about him. Just read through this again. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, and drink. Be merry. There's no other person in the story. There's no other character except for himself. The other character is himself. That's who he talks to. (laughs) So what should we do? I think this is what we should do, guy. Or I don't know what he says, right? (laughs) This would just be against kind of Middle Eastern culture, especially village life where family and community would be involved in all sorts of decisions. It's just him and his soul by himself the whole time until this ominous character God pops up and goes, fool, fool right at the end which points to an underlying effect of greed greed breeds isolation think of it the more wealth people acquire the further oftentimes they move from their neighbors they're harder to get to just just very practically where are the biggest houses outside outside of town Up in the hills, huge yards, gated fence. I'm not making a comment. If you live there, that's just kind of how it goes. Bigger house, away from people. I don't want to deal with people. Greed ends up breeding isolation away from people. One of the most haunting passages in in the Old Testament, Isaiah 5.8, just in terms of American culture. Listen to this. Isaiah 5.8, and it's this condemnation. He's going, woe to you, the wicked. This is who you are. He says, woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. You add more fields and more houses and more stuff and you just acquire and you acquire until you're by yourself in the middle of the land. He's saying, woe to you. This is your punishment. This breeds isolation. Isolation this haunting vision of all sorts of possessions and land and houses but you're completely alone blinds you to what you have and what abundance really is, what greed can end up doing is polluting and this is subtle, greed ends up polluting our love for other people by putting us in isolation, we never get our eyes off of ourself to see what our friends and our neighbors need, we're just thinking about ourselves. Someone said it this way, I think it was Eugene Peterson, he said, In our preoccupation with bigger barns, we forget to ask for bread for our friends. And that is where true life is found, in giving away your wealth for the good of other people. That's where abundance, that's where life is found, in relationship. By being in relationship with God and other people, that's where abundance is found, not in hoarding, not in dying rich and alone like this guy. Second observation about this guy's greed and about greed in general, which is also a very subtle part of the story. And it sounds kind of, it sounds different, but this is it. He assumes that he is the owner of his life and his wealth and his possessions. He assumes that he's the owner of what he has, which ends up, this is hard, being the wrong assumption. He just assumes that what he's been given is his that his life is his, that his crops are his, that his money is his. And in the end, it's the wrong bet. It's the wrong assumption. He never considers that his wealth may be for something else, for someone else. It's just all about himself. And he actually does realize it at the ironic height of this story, where he's built the barns, he lays in his chair. I mean, I love, I love that, right? That's what we want. We want to eat, drink, and be merry. And then you relax, right? That's, that's what we're after. And at the height of this, literally the word like be merry or rejoice is euphreno, From the word fron, kind of referring to your diaphragm. Like that big sigh I already did earlier, like, oh, man, now this is good. Big fat meal, I'm going to watch some TV, it's nice and warm, like we soul, we are in it. This is good. It's literally that, that, that word, this diaphragm, this big sigh, this ufreno from the, from the word fron. And it's that moment that God uses the word afron, which is the word fool. So it's literally like right as he breathes his deep sigh, like, and now we've made it. Like, ah, fool, right then. It's the ironic height of the story. And what he realizes in that moment is what? That life and possessions aren't your own. And that actually they were on loan from God. Who can demand the return of that loan at any time? Right? What does he say? It's that weird language. Your soul is required of you. He doesn't even say like, and then he struck him dead. Just... Time to pay. It literally has that meaning. Like, it's time to pay up. Give back what I gave you. What did you do with what I gave you? Your soul is required. He says, You fool, you assumed wrong. Which is one of the hardest things to remember in all of life. And yet, it's a central theme throughout all Scripture that life is not a right, but a gift. And he discovers this at the end of the story when God asks for his soul back. This night your soul is required of you. Greed, what greed does, when you get more and more, and you store more and more, and you have more and more, it gives you the illusion that you're in control of your own destiny, that your life is your own, that it's all about you, and you did this. When life is a gift, you don't know when God will say your soul is required of you this is an underlying effect of greed. You stop seeing life and you stop seeing people as a gift. People just become a way to get what you want. You use people maybe for for more money, more status, more acclaim. People are easy to label for you. You're just helpful or not helpful. You can just put people in their place. Are they going to help you or not? Life becomes so focused on what you need and soon you forget that life is a gift, that each day is a gift, that your life is on loan. Most often in the scripture, God uses this idea of a steward. He says you're actually a steward of your life. And so what did you do with what you've been given? Whether it was a little bit or a lot, what did you do with what I gave you? Life was a gift that I've given to you. This was a huge, this was a huge learning thing for me this year. This idea of steward, this was big to go, how am I viewing my life? How am I viewing my church? Do I want growth? Do we want people to come to know Christ? What do we want church to look like? How are we stewarding what God is doing, what he's given us here? The idea of a steward was this back in the day, because Jesus always uses the term steward. And Tim Keller, he, he was preaching on this, and this just was like right where I was at. The idea of a steward is that you manage whole estates. Right? And the estate is not just the house. It's the farm. It's the land. It's everything that a master owns. And you're over people, and you have your own house, and you manage the entire estate. But the thing about a steward was they had all this power, all this responsibility, but they still were a slave. The steward was still a slave. He still knew that he worked for the master, that All that he had and was responsible for was really on loan. You were just stewarding it for someone else. God says, this is the vision of your life. You work for the good of the master. But so quickly it becomes, nope, life is a right and I have it and it's all about me. And excess even becomes a right. Abundance becomes a right. I deserve this. We feel entitled to everything. When everything we need, we already have. Jesus, right after this little story, he goes, look at the birds and the flowers, right? Don't be anxious for anything. I'm going to give you what you need. This, I think, is the most painful thing to watch. Someone who has abundance in front of their face, and yet they can't see it. They can only see what they don't have. This is where greed leaves you. I talked about my friend who was in LAPD. One of the first scenes that he came up on, um, was, it was right 2008 during the collapse, financial collapse. And it was a jumper, someone that had jumped off a parking garage. It was the CEO of a company. And he's first on scene. And it was like, I think, a half hour, hour into it, the man's wife comes to the scene. And he has to deal with her. And she, she's not even grasping the moment and mourning it. She's just going, she literally, this is no joke, she literally just goes, what a, an idiot. Like all we were going to have to do, she's talking to my friend, all we were going to have to do is just maybe get a smaller house. Like move to a smaller gated area. Like that's all we were going to have to do. But for him it was the end. He stopped seeing life and everything that he had as a gift. It just became about more and more. And to take a step back, well, that would just be the end. That's just worthless. And she's going, all we would have to do is take a minor adjustment. But it was the end. It's painful to watch someone who can't see the abundance in front of their face. You stop seeing the gift of life, the gift of your family, the simple, beautiful things where abundance is found. Greed strips you of being thankful. It robs you. It literally robs you of life, which is that fascinating picture. It holds out this picture. I'm going to offer you more, and I'm going to give you destruction. I know I I saw tons of families coming in. Raising kids is just nuts. My buddy has a two-year-old, and they just had another little one. Um, Natalie is her name, but he's got a little two-year-old, and he's like, dude, I had the best day with my two-year-old today. And in my mind, like, best day, I'm thinking, like, Disneyland, right? Whatever it is. Like, I don't know. It's just good. I'm like, what did you do? Nothing. He actually was kind of sick, so he wasn't running around. It was the best day. (laughs) We literally sat on the couch and watched football, and he just laid his head on me, and we watched football for, like, three hours. He goes, but I literally, he's like, I could die a happy man. That's all I need. That's abundance. To be fighting for relationship for those moments, you're going, yeah, to be at peace with your family, that's what abundance is. The simple things, the, the little things in life, the greed just strips. He goes, you know what, work for more. What your family really needs is more stuff. It needs a bigger house. He's going, that's not where life is found. Life is found over here. greed strips you of thankfulness, and it literally, according to the parable, rots your soul. It's hard to recognize. So here are just a couple questions, and we'll finish up. Which I think is fascinating. What do you talk to your soul about? Like, what do you go, soul, if I just, if we just had this, like, we just had a little more room, if we just had a bigger house, like, what do you find yourself talking to yourself about? Like, Dude, if I just had that 52-inch, the 32 just is so lame. It would just be so good. People would probably come over more and like us more. What if I just had those boots this year? Those boots are so cute, right? (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) All right, I got to out my wife. We were driving into town, and she doesn't get into the country, but she's like, the boot barn? The boot barn? And I'm like, that's not the kind of boots you're thinking about. What, what do you talk to your soul about? Boots? Sorry, Rose, I'll pay for that. Dearly. If We just had a little bit more money. If I just had that car, if they just paid a little more attention to me, then we'd be happy, soul. What do you talk to yourself about? What is it that you just say, if I just had this, then we'd be there. Then we could just, we'll be there. And that type of thinking ends up two ways. You're never happy for other people, and you actually never end up being happy. You never give others what they need, which is where life is found. You're just constantly thinking about what you need. Jesus says you've got to lose your life to find it. Which leads to this next and last observation. This is, I think, the most fascinating piece about it. What's logical, this is what's scary about it, what's logical to the barn builder is not logical to Jesus. What is wisdom to this man saying, you know, I just got to build the stuff that I already have, build the barns for the stuff that God gave me. What's wisdom to him is foolish to God and his economy. At first reading, it really does sound, like it sounds fine. I'm like, that's, I think that's what I would do, right? God gave me all this stuff. I should at least be like responsible and, get, and like store it safely. It's very logical. It makes sense. Too much stuff? Get bigger barns to store all the stuff. That's being wise. And God says, it's not just not wise, it's utter foolishness in my economy. It doesn't make sense to me. In God's mind, all that wealth ever is, is love to be shared. That's all it ever is. It's love to be shared. This is the gospel. God poured out all of his wealth for us. The most precious gift. The most costly gift. Everything he had, his own son. He said, I'm going to give you this. All that wealth is, is love to be shared. He poured out himself. He gave his very best. He gave everything. He gave his son for those that don't deserve it. That's what makes sense in God's economy. And he's saying that's where life is going to be found. To be rich towards God is to be rich toward other people. And here's the thing, it doesn't have to be about money. And I know it, I feel that pressure, what Ken talked about. I'm just like, it feels like everybody's strapped, right? We've all got bills to pay, and it's not just about money. You can be greedy with your time, you can be greedy with your person, you can be greedy with your family, you can be greedy with your humor, you can be greedy with your patience, God says, give it away. What I've given to you, I've given to you so that you can give it away. What do you have an abundance of? What has He said? You know what? I'm going to give you an extra, just portion, a measure of this. Don't be greedy with it. Give it away and watch your soul grow. Watch your soul find life. Do you have an abundance of patience? Give it away, because a lot of us don't have it. Do you have an abundance of humor? then give it away. A lot of us aren't funny. And we need it. It just helps everything. What has God given you an abundance of? Don't be greedy with it. Life is going to be found when you give it away. It's not just about money. What has he given you? Jesus, uh, in this parable, he paints this picture of a man who's completely robbed of life. His wealth his desire for more destroyed any capacity for him to have any type of relationship with anyone. And in the end, he has no one to share his soul, life, wealth with. God says, What brings abundance is staying in relationship with me and with others. Probably the worst part of the story is that the guy didn't know he had a problem, which I've said, it's just tough. Greed ends up blinding you to where life is truly found. So here's the kicker. Here's the kick in the head. Here's the ghost punch that maybe you didn't see coming. I didn't see coming. Does the brother who was just asking for what he deserved, who was just asking for justice, for his fair share, his part of the inheritance, does he recognize himself as the barn builder? Jesus is saying, this is who you are. In the story, it's easy to say, well, well, I'm I'm not the one that has all the wealth. I'm not the wealthy landowner. I don't have overflowing riches. I'm just trying to get my share. I'm just trying to make it. And Jesus is saying, no, really? You have all that you need right now. Don't be greedy for more. You will not be able to eat and drink and be merry if you get the inheritance It will be when you see that abundance is found in loving me and loving your brother. Do you recognize yourself as the barn builder? The wealthiest people on the planet. But do we have life? That's the question. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for your grace and your wealth, your richness towards us. That your burden is light. That what you're trying to do is to help us find life. That you've given us good things, that you're the creator of good things, and you want us to find the good life that you want to uproot the things that cause death and destruction and blind us and give us a true taste, a true taste of true life found in your Son. So I pray for my own soul, the way that I handle my finances in my life. I pray for all of us this morning. Give us the courage to see that abundance is found in relationship, that it's found in serving and loving Give us the strength through your Spirit to persevere, to give ourselves away so that we would find life, so that we would find you. God, you are so good to us and we praise you this morning. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.